0: 3. Quiet desert pool that reflects the stars. What real significance has the tropical radiance of the lotus flower, the sacred symbol of Buddhism, for the Mongolian Lama in the cold and arid borders of Gobi or the wind-swept highlands of sterile Tibet? And yet these exotic ideas live on, even if they no longer bloom in the uncongenial soil. But to explain them in terms of their present environment would be indeed impossible. A people may present at any given time only a partial response to their environment also for other reasons. This may be either because their arrival has been too recent for the new habitat to make its influence felt, or because, even after long residence, one overpowering geographic factor has operated to the temporary exclusion of all others. Under these circumstances, suddenly acquired geographic advantages of a high order or such advantages long possessed but tardily made available by the release of national powers from more pressing tasks, may institute a new trend of historical development, resulting more from stimulating geographic conditions than from the natural capacities or aptitudes of the people themselves. Such developments, though often brilliant, are likely to be short lived and end-to-end suddenly or disastrously, because not sustained by a deep-seated national impulse animating the whole mass of the people. They cease when the first enthusiasm spends itself, or when outside competition is intensified, or the material rewards decrease. An illustration is found in the medieval history of Spain. The intercontinental location of the Iberian Peninsula exposed it to the Saracen conquest and to the constant reinforcements to Islam power furnished by the Mohammedanized Berbers of North Africa. For seven centuries this location was the dominant geographic factor in Spain's history. It made the expulsion of the Moors the sole object of all the Iberian states, converted the country into an armed camp, made the gentleman adventurer and Christian knight the national ideal. It placed the center of political control high up on the barren plateau of Castile, far from the centers of population and culture in the river lowlands or along the coast. It excluded the industrial and commercial development which was giving bone and sinew to the other European states. The release of the national energies by the fall of Granada in 1492 and the now ingrained spirit of adventure enabled Spain and Portugal to utilize the unparalleled advantage of their geographical position at the junction of the Mediterranean and Atlantic highways, and by their great maritime explorations in the 15th and 16th centuries, to become foremost among European colonial powers, but the development was sporadic, not supported by any widespread national movement. In a few decades the maritime preeminence of the Iberian Peninsula began to yield to the competition of the Dutch and English, who were, so to speak, saturated with their own maritime environment, then followed the rapid decay of the sea power of Spain, followed by that of Portugal, till by 1648 even her coasting trade was in the hands of the Dutch, and Dutch vessels were employed to maintain communication with the West Indies we had a later instance of sporadic development under the stimulus of new and favorable geographic conditions, a similar anticlimax, the expansion of the Russians across the lowlands of Siberia was quite in harmony with the genius of that land-bred people, but when they reached Bering Sea, the enclosed basin, the proximity of the American continent, the island stepping stones between, and the lure of rich seal skins to the fur-hunting Cossacks determined a sudden maritime expansion, for which the Russian people were unfit. Beginning in 1747, it swept the coast of Alaska, located its American administrative center first on Kadiak, then on Baranoff Island, and by 1812 placed its southern outposts on the California coast near San Francisco Bay and on the Thorelone Islands. Russian convicts were employed to man the crazy boats built of green lumber on the shores of Bering Sea, and Aleutian hunters with thereby dark as were impressed to catch the seal. The movement was productive only of countless shipwrecks many seal skins, and an opportunity to satisfy an old grudge against England, the territory gained was sold to the United States in 1867, this is the one instance in Russian history of any attempt at maritime expansion, and also of any withdrawal from territory to which the Muscovite power had once established its claim. This fact alone would indicate that only excessively tempting geographic conditions led the Russians into an economic and political venture which neither the previously developed aptitudes of the people nor the conditions of population and historical development on the Siberian seaboard were able to sustain. The history and culture of a people embody the effects of previous habitats and of their final environment, but this means something more than local geographic conditions. It involves influences emanating from far beyond the borders. No country, no continent, no sea, mountain or river is restricted to itself in the influence which it either exercises or receives. The history of Austria cannot be understood merely from Austrian ground. Austrian territory is part of the Mediterranean hinterland, and therefore has been linked historically with Rome, Italy, and the Adriatic. It is a part of the Upper Danube Valley and therefore shares much of its history with Bavaria and Germany, while the Lower Danube has linked it with the Black Sea. Greece, the Russian steppes, and Asia. The Asiatic Hungarians have pushed forward their ethnic boundary nearly to Vienna. The Austrian capital has seen the warring Turks beneath its walls, and shapes its foreign policy with a view to the relative strength of the Sultan and the Tsar. The earth is an inseparable whole. Each country or sea is physically and historically intelligible only as a portion of that whole. Currents and wind systems of the oceans modify the climate of the nearby continents. And direct the first daring navigations of their peoples. The alternating monsoons of the Indian Ocean guided Arab merchantmen from ancient times back and forth between the Red Sea and the Malabar coast of India. The equatorial current and the northeast trade wind carried the timid ships of Columbus across the Atlantic to America. The Gulf Stream and the prevailing westerlies later gave English vessels the advantage on the return voyage. Europe is a part of the Atlantic coast. This is a fact so significant that the North Atlantic has become a European Sea. The United States also is a part of the Atlantic coast, this is the dominant fact of American history. China forms a section of the Pacific Rim. This is the fact back of the geographic distribution of Chinese immigration to Anam, Tonkin, Siam, Malacca, the Philippines, East Indies, Borneo, Australia, Hawaiian Islands, the Pacific Coast states, British Columbia. The Alaskan coast, southward from Bristol Bay in Bering Sea, Ecuador and Peru. As the Earth is one, so is humanity. Its unity of species points to some degree of communication through a long prehistoric past. Universal history is not entitled to the name unless it embraces all parts of the Earth and all peoples, whether savage or civilized. To fill the gaps in the written record it must turn to ethnology and geography which by tracing the distribution and movements of primitive peoples can often reconstruct the most important features of their history. Anthropogeographic geographic problems are never simple. They must all be viewed in the long perspective of evolution and the historical past. They require allowance for the dominance of different geographic factors at different periods, and for a possible range of geographic influences wide as the earth itself. In the investigator they call for painstaking analysis and, above all, An open mind. Chapter II classes of geographic influences into almost every anthropogeographical problem. The element of environment enters in different phases, with different modes of operation and varying degrees of importance. Since the causal conception of geography demands a detailed analysis of all the relations between environment and human development, it is advisable to distinguish the various classes of geographic influences. Four fundamental classes of effects can be distinguished. One. The first class includes direct physical effects of environment, similar to those exerted on plants and animals by their habitat. Certain geographic conditions, more conspicuously those of climate, apply certain stimuli to which man, like the lower animals, responds by an adaption of his organism to his environment. Many physiological peculiarities of man are due to physical effects of environment, which doubtless operated very strongly in the earliest stages of human development and in those shadowy ages contributed to the differentiation of races. The unity of the human species is as clearly established as the diversity of races and peoples, whose divergences must be interpreted chiefly as modifications in response to various habitats in long periods of time. Such modifications have probably been numerous in the persistent and in ending movements, shiftings, and migrations which have made up the long prehistoric history of man. If the origin of species is found in variability and inheritance, variation is undoubtedly influenced by a change of natural conditions. To quote Darwin, In one sense the conditions of life may be said, not only to cause variability, either directly or indirectly, but likewise to include natural selection, for the conditions determine whether this or that variety shall survive. The variability of man does not mean that every external influence leaves its mark upon him, but that man is an organism, by the preservation of beneficent variations and the elimination of deleterious ones, is gradually adapted to his environment, so that he can utilize most completely that which it contributes to his needs. The self-maintenance under outward influences is an essential part of the conception of life which Herbert Spencer defines as the correspondence between internal conditions and external circumstances, or August Comte as the harmony between the living being and the surrounding medium or milieu. According to Virchow, The distinction of races rests upon hereditary variations, but heredity itself cannot become active till the characteristic or as you stand is produced which is to be handed down, but environment determines what variation shall become stable enough to be passed on by heredity. For instance, we can hardly err in attributing the great lung capacity, massive chests, and abnormally large torsos of the Quechua and Aymara Indians inhabiting the high Andean plateaus to the rarefied air found at an altitude of 10.000 or 15.000 feet above sea level. Whether these have been acquired by centuries of extreme lung expansion, or represent the survival of a chance variation of undoubted advantage, they are a product of the environment. They are a serious handicap when the Aymara Indian descends to the plains where he either dies off or leaves descendants with diminishing chests. See math page 101. Darwin holds that many slight changes in animals and plants, such as size, color, thickness of skin and hair, have been produced through food supply and climate from the external conditions under which the forms lived. Paul Ehrenreich, while regarding the chief race distinctions as permanent forms, not to be explained by external conditions, nevertheless conceives this slight and slow variation of the sub-race under changing conditions of food and climate as beyond doubt. Stature is partly a matter of feeding and hence of geographic condition. In mountain regions, where the food resources are scant, the varieties of wild animals are characterized by smaller size in general than our corresponding species in the lowlands. It is a noticeable fact that dwarfed horses or ponies had originated in islands, in Iceland, the Shetlands, Corsica and Sardinia. This is due either to scanty and varied food or to excessive inbreeding, or probably to both. The horses introduced into the Falkland Islands in 1764 have deteriorated so in size and strength in a few generations that they are in a fair way to develop a Falkland variety of pony. On the other hand, Mr. Homer Davenport states that the purebred Arabian horses raised on his New Jersey stock farm are in the third generation a hand higher than their grandsires imported from Arabia, and of more angular build. The result is due to more abundant and nutritious food and the elimination of long desert journeys. The low stature of the natives prevailing in certain misery spots of Europe, as in the Auvergne Plateau of southern France, is due in part to a race, in part to a disastrous artificial selection by the immigration of the taller and more robust individuals, but in considerable part to the harsh climate and starvation food yield of that sterile soil for the children of the region, if removed to the more fertile valleys of the Loire and Garonne grow to average stature. The effect of a scant and in certain food supply is especially clear in savages, who have erected fewer buffers between themselves and the pressure of environment. The bushmen of the Kalahari Desert are shorter than their tot kindred who pasture their flocks and herds in the neighboring grasslands. Samoyas, Laps, and other Hyperborean races of Eurasia are shorter than their more southern neighbors. The physical record of an immemorial struggle against cold and hunger. The stunted forms and wretched aspect of the snake Indians inhabiting the Rocky Mountain deserts distinguished these clans from the tall buffalo hunting tribes of the plains. Any feature of geographic environment tending to affect directly the physical vigor and strength of a people cannot fail to prove a potent factor in their history. Oftentimes environment modifies the physique of a people indirectly by imposing upon them certain predominant activities, which may develop one part of the body almost to the point of deformity. This is the effect of increased use or disuse which Darwin discusses. He attributes the thin legs and thick arms of the Peaguas Indians living along the Paraguay River to generations of lives spent in canoes, with the lower extremities motionless and the arm and chest muscles in constant exercise. Livingstone found these same characteristics of broad chests and shoulders with ill-developed legs among the Baratze of the Upper Zambezi, and they have been observed in pronounced form, coupled with distinctly impaired powers of locomotion. Among the Lingit, Chimchian, and Haida Indians of the southern Alaskan and British Columbia coast, where the geographic conditions of a mountainous and almost strandless shore interdicted agriculture and necessitated seafaring activities, an identical environment has produced a like physical effect upon the canoeemen of Tira del Fuego and the Aleutian Islanders, who often sit in their boats 20 hours at a time. These special adaptations are temporary in their nature and tend to disappear with change of occupation. As, for instance, among the lingot Indians, who develop improved leg muscles when employed as laborers in the salmon canneries of British Columbia, both the direct and indirect physical effects of environment thus far instanced are obvious in themselves and easily explained, far different is it with the majority of physical effects, especially those of climate, whose mode of operation is much more obscure than was once supposed, the modern geographer does not indulge in the naive hypothesis of the last century which assumed a prompt and direct effect of environment upon the form and features of man. Karl Ritter regarded the small, slit eyes and swollen lids of the turcoman as an obvious effect of the desert upon the organism. Stanhope Smith ascribed the high shoulders and short neck of the Tartars of Mongolia to their habit of raising their shoulders to protect the neck against the cold, their small, squinting eyes, overhanging brows, broad faces and high cheekbones, to the effect of the bitter, driving winds and the glare of the snow, till, he says, every feature by the action of the cold is harsh and distorted, these profound influences of a severe climate upon physiognomy he finds also among the laps, northern Mongolians, Samoyas and Eskimo, most of these problems are only secondarily grist for the geographers mill, for instance, when the Aryans descended to the enervating lowlands of tropical India. And in that debilitating climate lost the qualities which first gave them supremacy. The change which they underwent was primarily a physiological one. It can be scientifically described and explained therefore only by physiologists and physical chemists, and upon their investigations the geographer must wait before he approaches the problem from the standpoint of geographical distribution. Into the subclass of physical effects come all questions of acclimatization. These are important to the anthropogeographer just as they are to colonial governments like England or France, because they affect the power of national or racial expansion, and fix the historical fate of tropical lands. The present populations of the earth represent physical adaptation to their environments. The intense heat and humidity of most tropical lands prevent any permanent occupation by a native-born population of pure whites. The Katarils on north of the 40th parallel in America soon exterminates the Negroes. The Indians of South America, though all fundamentally of the same ethnic stock, are variously acclimated to the warm, damp, forest plains of the Amazon, to the hot, dry, treeless coasts of Peru, and to the cold, arid heights of the Andes. The habitat that bred them tends to hold them, by restricting the range of climate which they can endure, in the zone of the Andean slope lying between 4.000 and 6.000 feet of altitude which produces the best-flavored coffee and which must be cultivated. The imported Indians from the high plateaus and from the low Amazon plains alike sicken and die after a short time, so that they take employment on these coffee plantations for only three or five months, and then return to their own homes. Labor becomes nomadic on these slopes. And in the intervals these farmlands of intensive agriculture show the anomaly of a sparse population only of resident managers. Similarly in the high. Dry Himalayan Valley of the Upper Indus, over 10.0 feet above sea level, the natives of Lodak are restricted to a habitat that yields them little margin of food for natural growth of population but forbids them to emigrate in search of more, applies at the same time the lash to drive and the leash to hold, for these highlanders soon die when they reach the plains. Here are two antagonistic geographic influences at work from the same environment, one physical and the other social-economic. The Ladakhi have reached an interesting resolution of these two forces by the institution of Polyandry, which keeps population practically stationary. The relation of pigmentation to climate has long interested geographers as a question of environment, but their speculations on the subject have been barren, because the preliminary investigations of the physiologist, physicist and chemist are still incomplete. The general fact of increasing nigrescence from temperate towards equatorial regions is conspicuous enough. Despite some irregularity of the shading, this fact points strongly to some direct relation between climate and pigmentation, but gives no hint how the pigmental processes are affected. The physiologist finds that in the case of the Negro, the dark skin is associated with a dense cuticle, diminished perspiration, smaller chests and less respiratory power, a lower temperature and more rapid pulse, all which variations may enter into the problem of the Negro's coloring. The question is therefore by no means simple. Yet it is generally conceded by scientists that pigment is a protective device of nature. The Negro's skin is comparatively insensitive to a sun heat that blisters a white man. Livingstone found the bodies of albino Negroes in Betuana land always blistered on exposure to the sun. The andolite effect has been observed among albino Polynesians and Melanesians of Fiji. Paul Reich finds that the degree of coloration depends less upon annual temperature than upon the direct effect of the sun's rays and that therefore a people dwelling in a cool, dry climate, but exposed to the sun may be darker than another in a hot, moist climate but living in a dense forest, the forest-dwelling Batacudos of the upper San Francisco River in Brazil are fairer than the Kindred Caipo tribe, who inhabit the open campos, and the Arawak of the Poros River forests are lighter than their fellows in the central Mato Grosso, seafaring coast folk, who are constantly exposed to the sun, day especially in the tropics, Show a deeper pigmentation than their kindred of the wooded interior. The coast moros of western Mindanao are darker than the Sabanos, their Malay brethren of the back country, the lightness of whose color can be explained by their forest life. So the dualas of the Kumara and coast of Africa are darker than the back inhabiting the forest mountains just behind them. Though both tribes belong to the Banta group of people, here light, in contradistinction to heat, appears the dominant factor in pigmentation. A recent theory advanced by von Schmiedel in 1895, rests upon the chemical power of light. It holds that the black pigment renders the negro skin insensitive to the luminous or actinic effects of solar radiation, which are far more destructive to a living protoplasm than the merely calorific effects. Coloration responds to other more obscure influences of environment. A close connection between pigmentation and elevation above sea level has been established. A high altitude operates like a high latitude. Blondness increases appreciably on the higher slopes of the Black Forest, Vosges Mountains, and Swiss Alps, though these isolated highlands are the stronghold of the brunette alpine race. Livi, in his treatise on military anthropometry, deduced a special action of mountains upon pigmentation on observing a prevailing increase of blondness in Italy above the 400-meter line, a phenomenon which came out as strongly in Basilicata and Calabria provinces of the south as in Piedmont and Lombardy in the north. The dark Hamitic Berbers of northern Africa have developed an unmistakable blonde variant in high valleys of the Atlas Range, which in a subtropical region rises to the height of 12.000 feet. Here among the kabyles the population is fair, grey, blue or green eyes are frequent, as is also reddish blonde or chestnut hair. Waits long ago affirmed this tendency of mountaineers to a lighter coloring from his study of primitive peoples. The modification cannot be attributed wholly to climatic contrast between mountain and plain. Some other factor, like the economic poverty of the environment and the poor food supply, as Levi suggests, has had a hand in the result, but just what it is or how it has operated cannot yet be defined. Enough has been said to show that the geographer can formulate no broad generalization as to the relation of pigmentation and climate from the occurrence of the darkest skins in the tropics. Because this fact is weakened by the appearance also of lighter tints in the hottest districts, and of darker ones in arctic and temperate regions. The geographer must investigate the questions when and where deeper shades develop in the skins of fair races, what is the significance of dark skins in the cold zones and of fair ones in hot zones. His answer must be based largely on the conclusions of physiologists and physicists and only when these have reached a satisfactory solution of each detail of the problem can the geographer summarize the influence of environment upon pigmentation. The rule can therefore safely be laid down that in all investigation of geographic influences upon the permanent physical characteristics of races, the geographic distribution of these should be left out of consideration till the last, since it so easily misleads. Moreover, owing to the ceaseless movements of mankind... These effects do not remain confined to the region that produced them, but pass on with the wandering throng in whom they have once developed, and in whom they endure or vanish according as they prove beneficial or deleterious in the new habitat. I.I. More varied and important are the psychical effects of geographic environment. As direct effects they are doubtless bound up in many physiological modifications, and as influences of climate, they help differentiate peoples and races in point of temperament. They are reflected in man's religion and his literature, in his modes of thought and figures of speech. Blackstone states that, in the Isle of Man, to take away a horse or ox was no felony, but a trespass, because of the difficulty in that little territory to conceal them or to carry them off, but to steal a pig or a fowl, which is easily done, was a capital misdemeanor, and the offender punished with death. The judges or deemsters in this island of fishermen swore to execute the laws as impartially, as the herring's backbone doth lie in the middle of the fish. The whole mythology of the Polynesians is an echo of the encompassing ocean. The cosmography of every primitive people. Their first crude effort in the science of the universe. Bears the impress of their habitat. The Eskimos hell is a place of darkness. Storm and intense cold, the Jews is a place of eternal fire. Buddha. Born in the steaming Himalayan piedmont fighting the lassitude induced by heat and humidity, pictured his heaven as nirvana, the cessation of all activity and individual life. Intellectual effects of environment may appear in the enrichment of a language in one direction to a rare nicety of expression, but this may be combined with a meager vocabulary in all other directions. The greatest cattle breeders among the native Africans, such as the Hereros of western Namibia and the Dinkas of the upper White Nile, have an amazing choice of words for all colors describing their animals brown, dun, red, white, dapple, and so on in every gradation of shade and hue. The Samoyas of northern Russia have eleven or twelve terms to designate the various grays and browns of their reindeer. Despite their otherwise low cultural development, the speech of nomads has an abundance of expressions for cattle in every relation of life. It includes different words for breeding, pregnancy, death, and slaughtering in relation to every different kind of domestic animal. The Magyars, among whom pastoral life still survives on the low plains of the Danube and Ice, have a generic word for herd, Xorda, and special terms for herds of cattle, horses, sheep, and swine, while the vocabulary of Malays and Polynesians is especially rich in nautical terms. The Kyogai Shepherd tribes who wander over the highlands of Western Asia from the Shan to the Hindu Kush have four different terms for four kinds of mountain passes. A Dabon is a difficult, rocky defile, an art is very high and dangerous, a bell is a low, easy pass, and a Kutla is a broad opening between low hills. To such influences man is a passive subject, especially in the earlier stages of his development. But there are more important influences emanating from his environment which affect him as an active agent, challenge his will by furnishing the motives for its exercise, give purpose to his activities, and determine the direction which they shall take. These mold his mind and character through the media of his economic and social life, and produce effects nonetheless important because they are secondary. About these anthropogeography can reach sure conclusions than regarding direct psychical effects because it can trace their mode of operation as well as define the result. Direct psychical effects are more matters of conjecture, whose causation is asserted rather than proved. They seem to float in the air, detached from the solid ground underfoot, and are therefore subject matter for the psychologist rather than the geographer. What of the great man in this geographical interpretation of history? It seems to take no account of him, or to put him into the melting pot with the masses. Both are to some extent true. As a science, anthropogeography can deal only with large averages, and these exclude or minimize the exceptional individual. Moreover, geographic conditions which give the or that bent to a nation's purposes and determine its aggregate activities have a similar effect upon the individual, but we may institute a far-seeing policy, to whose wisdom only gradually is the people awakened. The acts of the great man are rarely arbitrary or artificial, he accelerates or retards the normal course of development but cannot turn it counter to the channels of natural conditions. As a rule he is a product of the same forces that made his people. He moves with them and is followed by them under a common impulse. Daniel Boone, that picturesque figure leading the van of the westward movement over the Allegheny Mountains, was born of his frontier environment and found a multitude of his kind in that region of Backwoods Farms to follow him into the wilderness. Thomas Jefferson of Virginia, in the Louisiana Purchase, carried out the policy of expansion adumbrated in Governor Spotsid's expedition with the Knights of the Golden Horseshoe over the Blue Ridge in 1712. Jefferson's daring consummation of the purchase without government authority showed his community of purpose with the majority of the people. Peter the Great's location of his capital at St. Petersburg, usually stigmatized as the act of a despot, was made in response to natural conditions offering access to the Baltic nations just as certainly as ten centuries before similar conditions and identical advantages led the early Russian merchants to build up a town at nearby Novgorod, in easy water connection with the Baltic commerce. I.I.I. Geographic conditions influence the economic and social development of a people by the abundance, paucity, or general character of the natural resources, by the local ease or difficulty of securing the necessaries of life, and by the possibility of industry and commerce afforded by the environment. From the standpoint of production and exchange. These influences are primarily the subject matter of economic and commercial geography, but since they also permeate national life, determine or modify its social structure, condemn it to the dwarfing effects of national poverty, or open to it the cultural and political possibilities resident in national wealth, they are legitimate material also for anthropogeography.